Good morning. Is this on? Yep, it's on. Uh, scripture reading today is from Matthew 4, uh, verse 12 through 17, and verse 23. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the uh, region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all today. Uh, up to this point in our series on uh, the Bible as a kingdom story, we've traced the theme of kingdom through the Old Testament. We followed the threefold Hebrew division of the law, the prophets, the writings. And there we saw patterns and paradigms established for the kinds of, of kings that God would approve, kings that would foster shalom, human thriving and blessing. Uh, and whose people would thrive so long as they recognize the ultimate rule of God Himself. Conversely, we saw the paradigm of a worldly usurper king, somebody like Pharaoh, whose godless reign brought sin and oppression and death. But in addition to those paradigms, the Old Testament also gave us promises, a lot of promises about something better, prophecies of a coming king who would bring the will of heaven, the very will of heaven, to this earth. As you may have uh, guessed, uh, this prophesied king was Jesus. And it's this pivotal part of the, the kingdom story that we come to this morning. And the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of Jesus is called, in uh, especially the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel. This text that Don just read us uh, a second ago from Matthew 4 has Jesus saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23 of Matthew 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus went about through all Galilee proclaiming what is called the gospel of the kingdom. We know the word gospel just means good news. Some of your versions probably translate it that way, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In many ways, what the gospel is, is an announcement that the king is here. It's a royal announcement. Uh, Matthew is, in a sense, a herald. Uh, all the witnesses, all the evangelists were heralds of this king's arrival. Um, and we're going to be talking about you know, what the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was bringing to earth uh, entailed. We're going to do that many times, Lord willing, throughout the coming year. Today, today I want to note three basic things about kind of fundamental characteristics of the rule of Jesus Christ. Three fundamental traits, essential traits about his kingship uh, as we talk about um, part four in this, uh, the Bible as a kingdom story. First of all, one of the things that um, 
the Gospels claim, and that much of the Bible taken as a whole claims, is that Jesus is a, is a king who reigns legitimately. He's credentialed, if you will. He's pedigreed. Um, his king, kingship is legitimate because it is, is the biblically constituted kingship. He has the right to rule. Throughout the history of monarchies, there have always been pretenders. There have always been pretenders, uh, revolutionaries, you know, who, um, who execute the king and just wait their turn to be executed, you know, uh, like the Coldplay song. Um, I don't remember the name of it now. Um, what's coming to my mind is not the song. La Vida, La Vida Loca, that's not it. Um, you know the song I'm talking about. Anyway, um, revolutionaries wait for my head on a, sink, a, a silver plate, all of that. So it, it matters that you have the sort of dynastic credentials. You have the, the lineage, the ancestry to prove that you are the rightful occupant of the throne. Uh, kings typically have to show that um, pedigree or lineage, if you will, to, to be authentic and not pretender kings. And the Bible goes to, sufficient, uh, to significant length rather, to show that Jesus was this coming king to whom the scriptures were pointing. Hence we get the question from John the Baptist as he, he's been announcing that Jesus is that king, that lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, but now he's languishing in, in jail. And so he sends representatives to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you the, quote, one who is to come? There is one who is supposed to be coming in the Jewish consciousness of the first century. And John is now wondering, are you that one? Have we identified the right um, one to, you know, who's going to be, who's coronated, who's the rightful king. And Matt and I have been talking over the last uh, three weeks or so about this passage in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus on, in that conversation with the fellows on the road to Emmaus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, chief book in the writings, the threefold Hebrew division of the Old Testament, all of that really was about me, he says, and is going to be fulfilled, is being fulfilled in me. So there are these biblical credentials that have to be met. And so the point here is that King Jesus and his coming kingdom have a biblical backstory. We can't just jump into Matthew or John and start talking about what a kingdom is, what the kingdom of Christ is. It has this giant backstory. You're, you're, you're reading like chapter 7 out of, you know, uh, an eight or nine chapter book or something. You, you don't know what that's about if you don't read chapters one through six. So we've always got to place Jesus in this Jewish context, in this biblical context, to really appreciate that his kingship is the fulfillment of a grand Old Testament narrative with all of its promises, all of its patterns, and all of those different streams are coming together. I think of like a mighty river, you know, which gathers up the flow of numerous smaller tributaries upstream. And there are many different Old Testament streams, images, themes, promises, prophecies, and so on, stories that are, are coalescing. They're coming together in this um, stream of Jesus Christ, if you will. Some of those streams, two or three of them here, just real quick, in Matthew 4 that Don read a second ago, the text is quoting from Isaiah 9, particularly verses 1 and 2. Um, what is Isaiah 9 talking about? Well, in, this, in the first two verses, we've got this reference to the gospel, the light of the gospel 
going into the otherwise dark places, even where the Gentiles are, right? The nations are, outside of the circles, uh, on the borders of, of the Jewish people. But also, this light going to the Gentiles would be accomplished by a special king who was coming. If you read on in Isaiah 9, we read things like this. For to us a child is born, Isaiah 9 verse 6. To us a son is given. There's a, there's a child coming, an anointed son, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And then notice this oft-repeated biblical promise, beginning in 2 Samuel 7, but repeated over and again. We're not through with the throne of David, the, the biblical text tells us. The throne of David will have its ultimate occupant in some coming child to be born. He will be a king who will reign on the throne of David, a kingdom which will last, unlike all the other kingdoms of humanity, the kingdoms of the world, it will last forevermore. So all of that, you know, this stream is coming to, uh, coming to a, a confluence with other Old Testament streams, and um, it's being embodied, incarnated by Jesus himself. This is the reason the book of Matthew opens with a 17-verse long genealogy. I, I know you're not supposed to use a .2 font, um, but I don't know how you get 17 verses on there. We're not going to read this, don't worry, all those names. I just want you to see how big it is. There's a lot going on here. Basically a list of so-and-so who had so-and-so who had so-and-so who had so-and-so. It's a genealogy. But it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And um, I don't know why this is not advancing. There we go. Look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of two important biblical figures the son of David, and the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew characterizes who Jesus is. He's assuming we know this biblical backstory, that we know who Abraham is and David are, and they are, they are pivot points in uh, you know, key linkages in the story about the coming king of the world. But then immediately after this genealogy, over in chapter 2, the text begins referring to the newborn Jesus as a king. The Magi come from the east, from these pagan lands, to see the newborn king. And Herod takes that seriously, doesn't he? He sees him as a real <laughs> um, rival to the throne. Uh, and then when you get over in chapter uh, 4, which uh, we, we started off with this morning, we have this reference to the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus comes saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A new sovereignty, a new ruler, uh, a, a new rule is coming to earth, and it's coming from heaven. And this phrase, kingdom of heaven, is found 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. 31 times. Extremely important. Uh, and so we've got to understand that this is part and parcel of what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to be your personal Savior, and that's it. No context. He just dropped out of heaven one day so that I could get my sins forgiven and then go on with my merry way and my old story and my narrative and my identity. It's all the same. I just got that sin hell problem taken care of. Right? Um, what is it uh, Dallas Willard calls this? Uh, Jake, you're always telling me the gospel of sin management or something like that. That's what Jesus came to do. That's, I would say, how a large part of evangelical America thinks about the gospel. It's not this story that impacts everything in the planet, everything in the cosmos, including us in, as sinners. Just this little, you know, atomistic point about you. It's very narcissistic if you think about it. I can keep doing what I want. It's just... Ooh, I got that in my back point. Don't have to worry about death now. No, no, it's bigger than that. He would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. So the gospel is this royal pronouncement. 
that there is good news, earth, the long-awaited king who's going to finally fix things. He is here. One more stream that coalesces into this mighty river, which is Jesus Christ. And that is this, uh, we looked at it last week in the writings, the book of Daniel has this uh, incredible prophecy of all these kings of the, of the earth are pictured in their sub- successive dynasties and empires and so on. But then there is in this vision in Daniel 7, 13, coming on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. He is presented before the ancient of days, the, uh, you know, God himself. And to him, to this son of man is given dominion, a glory and a kingdom. And it's going to be a kingdom which presides over all people's nations, languages, and so on, and it would last forever. It would not pass away. It would be an everlasting dominion. And guess who the phrase Son of Man is used of over and over and over again? Jesus. I didn't count those, but lots of times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to by this, this phrase, the Son of Man, who would, whose kingdom alone would last forever as these other human kingdoms uh, fade away as they uh, are wont to do. So this point is simple. It's just that Jesus has the pedigree to be the legitimate king. He's not a pretender. And if you don't think the question of who rules this earth and who rules this life and who rules your life and my life is important, go back to what um, we talked about in the Lord's Supper today. The sin in the garden is really a question of who's, who's ruling, right? You can be like God, the serpent tells Eve. So it's one of the most practical questions in terms of 24-7 daily on-the-ground impact that you could possibly ask. Who's the legitimate ruler of your life, of your priorities, of your budget, of your use of time, of your thinking and your values and your dreams and your nightmares? What, What determines all of that? What shapes it? The one who rules your heart, the one who rules this world. And so this question of who is the legitimate ruler of this world is the question. And the Bible's answer is a resounding Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one anointed to be king, just like David was. One implication of the legitimacy, the scripturally constituted legitimacy of the kingship of Jesus is that he has the right as the ruler, the true ruler, ruler, to wield authority. And so we see Jesus correcting the scribes' uh, readings of the Law and the Prophets in the Sermon on the Mount, not on the basis of appeal merely to another scribe. Well, that scribe was wrong. This academic was wrong. This one's right. I got my guy. You know how everybody does that? There's a study that says, but there's a study that says, but there's a study that says. Everybody's got their experts, right? Jesus doesn't do that. When he finishes the sermon, the audience noticed they were with astonishment that he was teaching them as one who had authority, inherent authority, and not as their scribes. There's no footnotes. There's no appeal to some other authority. He is the inherent authority. And he has that right as a legitimate king. The way John puts it, it calls Jesus nothing less than the word. Taking us back to the opening words of the Bible, In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was done in Alexandria that David was talking about a couple of centuries before Jesus that Jesus uses and Paul uses all through the New Testament, these are the exact words in the Greek, in the beginning. That's Genesis 1.1, but now it's applied to something, not not the creation of, of of the cosmos, but 
the new creation that's coming by virtue of Jesus Christ. Remember how divine speech was the agent that creates in the beginning? The Word, God's Word. Jesus is the incarnate, the embodied, the enfleshed Word, verse 14 says. And as the divine Word, He, like God in creation in Genesis 1-1, has, He alone has the power to create, to bring life merely by royal speech. Sitting on the throne, He, he issues an edict and things happen because He is the Creator King of the universe. And that brings up our second point. In addition to the pedigree of Christ's kingship, when we think about the rule of Jesus, we have to think about what kind of power are we talking about? Because that's implied as well. The power of Christ's kingship. It is not just another earthly power. Right? So, you know, you can build a bigger engine, then a bigger engine, then a bigger engine, and it's got more horsepower. Uh, you know, put more metal in there, burn more gas, more horsepower. Wow. I've, I've always been more impressed with efficiency, personally. I know that Greg goes against Greg probably, but the horsepower guys. But like, yeah, I have enough metal and enough gas burning, it gets, it gets one mile a gallon. But man, it's got 800 horses. I like, you hardly did anything and you're still rock and roll. Down. Th this isn't even in that realm, though. That discussion of, of human power and the things that we do to get power. This is not earthly at all, right? So this isn't an internal combustion engine or electric motor or a nuclear reactor. It's a different thing altogether. It's heavenly power. What he's bringing to earth is the kingdom, the rule, the power of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, 31 times in Matthew. Remember in the beginning, it took the power of divine words to bring order and life into a world that was formless and void. In the same way, it takes the power of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, to bring a new beginning to this world. And a new beginning is what was desperately needed, right? Think of all the sin and discord and death that had overtaken this world. That, that's what the usurping of God's rule does. That's what it brings about. We just need to know that. When we usurp God's rule on whatever level, we can expect dysfunction, you know, discord, death even. That's how it works. That's how the universe is wired. But in the place of sin, discord, and death, King Jesus brings redemption, reconciliation, and renewal. And that's what the power of heaven can bring about. So let's talk about each of those, sin, discord, and death. Who was this man who could absolve even human sin? Do you remember this story in Matthew 9? That people bring to Jesus a paralytic, a man who's paralyzed. He's lying on a bed. And when Jesus sees their faith, he, he, says, to something, he says to the paralytic something very uh, odd, seemingly. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, they didn't bring him there, presumably, for that. Why did they bring him? He's paralyzed. They'd like this healer, whose renown is now going around the region, to, to be brought to bear on this person's physical malady. But he says instead to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. As if to say, 
I'm just demonstrating to you in a tangible, palpable way that I have the power over sin. Because none of y'all know how I did this. You also don't know how I could do that. The one sort of indicates the other. He rose and went home, and the crowd saw it and and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Jesus the King brings the authority or the power even to handle the problem of human sin. One of the results of sin in our world is, is division, discord, right? We see this in the garden. Adam, who says to Eve, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you're the greatest thing ever, a page later is saying, the woman you gave me, right? Same guy, same woman. That's post-sin. That's what it does. Um, sin has all sorts of untold you know, ripples in, in the pond that we never saw coming that often impact our relationship with one another. I would say almost always do. And yet we, bring, we see Jesus bringing together a zealot named Simon and a tax collector named Matthew. We won't read this whole text, but as he, this is a list of the 12 disciples, the, the, you know, the, the sort of inner circle of Jesus' influencers that are going to be changing the world with him, going all over the place, preaching the gospel, empowered by him miraculously to do so even. And among them we have two of the most unlikely people, one of the most unlikely pairings taken together that we, you could possibly imagine. Because a tax collector means that he is an employee of the pagan Roman occupying force. He's facilitating Rome's pagan rule, a kind of in-place exile, if you will. They're, they're at home in Palestine again, but they've got pagan power over them like they've often had when they were away from home. And Matthew is a Jew working for them to make sure that, on some level, happens. The Zealots were a, a, a group of revolutionaries. The Romans would have called them terrorists. The Jews would have called them freedom fighters. Kind of sometimes your perspective, right? But these people would, would uh, sometimes knife public officials in public squares and things like that, trying to get rid of the, Ro the Roman uh, rule over them. And somehow, the Jesus movement is able to bring these two people together. I want you to imagine that. What would that look like today? Put that in our context today. What two parties... If a church is functioning like it should and Christ followers are functioning like they should, what two really estranged parties, enemies even, should be brought together to work in common cause? Republicans and Democrats? I, I don't know. Fox News and CNN watchers? You laugh, but churches have split over such stuff in the last two or three years. Usually the symbol was a mask. That's real, that really happened. A lot, over and over and over. Some of us know people in churches where that happened. We're talking a zealot and a tax collector. A Roman, not just sympathizer, but enabler, and, and one who wants death to the Roman occupiers. Somehow, all of that gets tabled, backburnered, maybe even erased, as they get an identity higher than any of that in Jesus Christ, in His rule, His kingdom. And Jesus brings all sorts of people to dine at his table. He eats with those whom society had marginalized. Prostitutes, disreputable sinners of all sorts, eating at his table. 
And moreover, Jesus came, unlike many other kings, not to appeal to a single race or a single nation to tell them, I'm here to save your race and your nation and your ethnic group from all these other bad guys over here. He comes for all humanity. Quoting another part of Isaiah, chapter 42 in Isaiah. Matthew chap Matthew's full of a lot of Isaiah references and allusions and quotations. But this is from Isaiah 42. We read this in Matthew 12, 17, that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. In his name the nations will put their hope. Do you remember the response of Jonah? The Hebrew prophet, the Jewish prophet, who was told to go send the message, the, the saving message of Yahweh, the God of Israel to these people that they feared, these pagan people of Assyria in Nineveh. And Jonah recoiled at the idea. In fact, the book closes, he goes, but the book closes with Jonah pouting and pointing the finger of God and saying, I knew you would be gracious toward these vile people. God's bigger than that. He's holy. He's set apart from all of our rivalries, prejudices, and chauvinisms. And man, there's nothing humans do better than to divide off into tribes and point fingers at each other. And just wait on some would-be deliverer to come in there and tap that fear, even sometimes create that fear, so that he or she can solve it for us. It's no solution. Just another earthly king. We need the one who will bring justice, righteousness to the nations, so the nations can really have hope. And that one is Jesus, the Son of God. He has an answer to sin. He has an answer to all of our strife. And that's what kingdom come, thy kingdom come, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth. That's what it looks like. These are the signs of a world restored. I, I forgot to mention this third area, sickness, suffering. Two or three times in the Gospels, we read something like this. This is Matthew 12, 8. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons who are convulsing people and making them foam at the mouth and all this stuff, then he says, what does that show? What does it signify? That the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what the rule of, of God pulls off. Luke 10, 9. Heal the sick, he says to the, some disciples that are sent out on another occasion. And say to the people that you're healing. In other words, do this deed, this, this act of service, but then interpret it for them. What's the interpretation? That the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's kind of like when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 5, but then he interprets it and says, look, I'm talking, this signifies a different kind of bread that fills you up in a different way. Here's what he's doing here. Healing people, but saying, this is the rule of God. It's not just a random one-off you know, healing. This is what the coming of the kingdom looks like. It is enabled by and manifests itself in a kind of power that is unearthly. It is the kingdom of heaven. And the only place from which such radical redemption, reconciliation, and restoration can occur or can, can be sourced is in heaven itself, not earth. The third thing that we have to understand about the rule of Jesus or the kingship of Jesus is, is with all this being said, you know, it's the biblically constituted and therefore a legitimate pedigree of the true king who is, 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 has the right to rule, He's got a power that can really bring solutions, unlike all the earthly kingdoms which purport to have power. How many of you right now in your mind are, are scared to death about November? Because you really think 
that what's going to save our world is whoever you think should get elected gets elected. That's the opposite, just be, just be real here, of what I'm talking about. That's the opposite. That's putting your faith in the kingdoms of humanity. I'm not saying don't vote your conscience and let it be informed by the Bible. We, of course, should do that. We're not ostriches who put our heads in the sand. Escapism's not an answer either. His, the government would be on his shoulders. Like, it's real government on the ground. <laughs> this stuff matters. It's called life. But this idea that we can come up with some, something that is sufficiently powerful to solve the world's problems from within humanity and from within the earth is a pipe dream. The power and the pedigree are associated with the rule of Jesus and Jesus alone. But our third point is that it is a really odd kind of kingdom. It's a very peculiar kingdom. And so we need to talk as well about the peculiarity of Christ's kingship. I don't know that I've ever used the word peculiarity in a bullet point in a sermon, but alliteration is just a beautiful thing. Um, really what I'm talking about here is, I guess we could have said even paradox. Because it is the height of paradox to think that this ultimate ruler, the only true, original, and creative power in all the cosmos, that ruler took such an unlikely path to the throne and, and, and even today wields his kingly power in such upside-down ways. Everything about it is backwards and upside-down and counterintuitive. It doesn't work like the kingdoms of the world very peculiar. Think about everything from King, about King Jesus as we read about it in the Bible. From, from his entrance into this world to his exit from this world, none of it fits the conventional model of how kings operate. It's just a whole different MO, right? Kings make grand entrances, correct? Typically. Think about Queen Elizabeth and anything to do with England and the whole world, not just England, goes berserk. I mean, the foxes went there just to see it. Just kidding. Pretty good luck, though. <laughs> Maybe it was just to see it. Anyway, there's pomp, right? There, there's, there's grand entrances. There are, you know, um, royal processions with all, everybody's festooned and all the, 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 the fancy get, uh, get up and all that. I want you to notice the way Jesus comes into the world. This is the king of kings. This is a very peculiar path into this world over which he would, would reign. So we talked a minute ago about the genealogy in Matthew 1. There's some really peculiar things in this genealogy. Four women are named, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and in brackets Bathsheba. Only Matthew doesn't call her that, he calls her the wife of Uriah. Why are they mentioned? Well, one possibility, and these aren't mutually exclusive, it could be some of both, and other factors probably as well. One possibility is that there is uh, a good bit of sexual impropriety in this list, to say the least. All right? Now, men are perpetrators too, or maybe only, mainly, in this whole list. That, that's not, I'm not trying to blame anything on the women here. I mean, the wife of Uriah. David had a little bit to do with that, don't you think? Um, each of those. And I can't think of anything with regard to Ruth there, but if the other three, there's a lot of scandal associated with it that, that has to do with sexual impropriety. We'll just leave it at that. But 
perhaps even bigger is that all four of these women are probably non-Israelite. This is a genealogy of a king who is coming from the nation of Israel. God has called out the Israelites. Remember the heart in our timeline? That's the promise to Abraham, which represents, you know, God isn't done with his people even though they've sinned. Even though there's this mushroom and death. Like mushrooms, like, you know, death can, life can come from death. And God does that in Genesis 12. He's going to make a name for his people and give them a land. And through one of their descendants, one of Abraham's descendants, bless all the peoples, the tribes, the nations of the earth. That's Jesus, as we know from the Bible story. So it's supposed to come out of this wonderful Hebrew pedigree. Here's his pedigree. I don't know what all to make of this. I know it must be important because it's the opening part of Matthew 1, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. One point, I believe, is that God is saying something like this. This feat, this accomplishment, the arrival of the heir to the Abrahamic and Davidic promises, Israelite history, this is being accomplished not from the human mind or by human might. This Savior is coming from God, and He's doing it in some really surprising, you might even say weird ways. Who saw this coming? Think about Jesus' birth. There's no glorious royal procession down the streets of Rome or Athens or Alexandria, you know, these big places famous for all sorts of things. That's not where it happens. This king arrives in the sticks and is unceremoniously placed in a feeding trough. That's his bassinet. It's not some gilded, you know, well-crafted piece of art. It's a feeding trough, constructed perhaps from trees that Jesus himself had created. Think about that. Surrounded by livestock that he spoke into existence in an out-of-the-way place on the edge of the empire. Shepherds received the initial announcement. One of the lowliest people socioeconomically were the shepherds. They get the announcement in a field. What a grand entrance for this king. And kings make grand exits as well. Triumphal processions and so on. Well, we don't get gilded, gem-encrusted crowns going on the head of Jesus as he exits. Instead, he gets a crown of thorns. His coronation, in fact, was a crucifixion. What an odd way to be coronated. But that's how he puts it in John 12. Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So imagine you're in the crowd and you hear that voice thundering out of the heavens. Verse 28, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So he's talking about triumph over the, the ruler of darkness, over Satan and his lieutenants and spiritual minions and all of that, right? That's what he's talking about. The ruler of the earth has been cast out. How? When I'm lifted up? He said in verse 33, 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So what he's saying is, I am going to become the recognized king by being nailed to a cross. And that will be what draws all the world to me, to recognize ultimately my kingship. We might be so used to that it's lost its scandal. That was not the case in the first century. This was so counterintuitive to contemporaries in the first century world, whether Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, that it was almost it was a deal breaker for many people. It was absurd to claim that the King of Kings, the God-enfleshed King of the universe, had been crucified at the hands of human beings. That's what Paul acknowledges in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says in verse 23, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Think of all the Jewish prophets with their miracles and signs and wonders. Think of the Greeks in Athens seeking wisdom and looking for just the latest new philosophy on Mars Hill. Paul says that's what everybody's wanting, but here's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles, but that's what we preach. Because that's the heart of the kingdom of heaven. A crucified and resurrected king. That's the claim. And Paul had said in verse 18 of this same chapter, the word of the cross. He calls the gospel the word of the cross. It's so central. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A peculiar power indeed, but nevertheless the power of God. Patrick Schreiner in his little book, The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross, says this, We expect the king to come into the world with a bang to conquer, destroy, win, and set up his kingdom. But he comes quietly in a little town in the corner of the world. Rather than conquering, he is conquered. Rather than overthrowing, he is trod into the very dirt. Yet it is only being conquered, only by being conquered, that he installs the kingdom that was promised long ago. A very odd entrance for a king into his dominion, into the world that he will rule over, a very odd exit, peculiar as it could be. But in between, or and in between, the entering and the exiting of this earth, we see an upside-down way of ruling, of wielding his power. While he was living on earth, looked nothing like conventional kings and what they do. Remember in Matthew 20, a couple of his disciples ask if they can, when Jesus comes in his power, be number two and three in the kingdom? Not too much to ask. You can have number one. We just want two and three. And then the other however many billion people uh, you know, can be after us. But Jesus called them to himself in verse uh, 25 of Matthew 20 and says to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the nations, lord it over them. That's what rulers do. Right? And their great ones exercise authority over them. That's what greatness means in the nations, out in the world. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See how he's flipping everything upside down? And even as the Son of Man, he says, I modeled this myself. I came even on the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 figure, the ultimate ruler who will preside over God's kingdom forever and ever. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, the King who would come on the clouds to replace and vanquish all the kingdoms of the earth, all these usurper kingdoms who had dealt sin and death and discord, the Son of Man, that Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. A homeless king. Imagine that. What could be more peculiar? He's coming to subjugate all the earthly usurper kings and kingdoms once and for all, and he's willing, nevertheless, to go homeless in the world that he has made because he loves it and he loves us. That's a peculiar way. However you slice it, that's a peculiar way to rule. And yet that is the way that heaven's king rules. And I want us to really think about this, the upshot of this point. Especially, not just now, but as we go through the year's lessons. When we talk about kingdom come, your kingdom come, it's the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth. When we talk about that, folks, we need to, to make our minds as best we can as human beings confessedly situated in time and space with all of our biases and assumptions and baggage we all bring to anything we do, anything we look at or analyze, try as, as hard as you can to become a blank slate and let the words of Scripture, when it talks about the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, let it repopulate your mind and your imagination in its own way. Don't force it into whatever assumption or expectation you have because here's the deal. This kingdom is not your everyday garden variety kingdom. It's different, right? So as we encounter what the scriptures tell us about the kingdom of heaven and it's coming to earth, we need to check our expectations at the door, so to speak. We, we need to open our minds, our, our hearts and our lives to being surprised. Get ready to be surprised. Who wouldn't have been surprised? about a claim that this king willingly was crucified, was coronated through his death, burial, and resurrection. So, appreciate your attention. That's what we got for today. Next week, in our last lesson in this little series on, it's kind of an overview of the Bible as a kingdom story, looking at the Bible story through the lens of kingdom and kingship. Next week, we're going to get a little glimpse of God's kingdom in eternity, of where the biblical story of the kingdom is ultimately headed, the world's final destiny, and if you're one of the people of God, your final destiny. So come back next week if you want to hear some more about the conclusion of this wonderful story. If we can help you in any way, we're going to sing in just a second with Corey. He's going to lead us a song, lead us in a song. And if, if you have a need, spiritual need, to, to get close to the Lord, maybe you've never become a Christian or interested in that, we can help you do that. We have a baptistry here to baptize people into Christ for the remission of sins, as we read about in the New Testament. We would be happy to pray with you, study with you. As Corey said earlier, we're, we don't have all the answers. It's not, like, it's not about us, but we believe that Jesus is the King and that the answers are in His Word. If you're interested in that, and we can help you in any way to that end, let us know by coming to one of these front chairs while we all together stand and sing.